What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Bring in show music, please. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on Squawk Pod, ExxonMobil CEO Darren Woods, big oil's big profits came in 2022, and they've got a bigger role in politics in 2024. We've cut out uh, over $7 billion of structural cost. We've got an investment portfolio that I think uh, leads the industry. We're continuing to grow production. What's next for the maybe stalled Microsoft Activision deal and why global regulators are cracking down on tech companies? Former general counsel for Facebook, Chris Kelly. You want to allow combinations that can increase competition um, and that, that allow even large players to compete well against other large players. All that today and tech's quarterly results, the good, the bad and the ugly. Plus, Coinbase is firing back at the SEC and egg prices ready to cool. No bird flu here. <laughs> it's Friday, April 28th. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand back you by in three. Two, one, cue please. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We're live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. It's Friday. It's been a long week. We're here. The Dow and the, be- the S&P coming off their best days since January. Dow was up by 524 points. The S&P was up by nearly 2%. And the Nasdaq was the big winner. It was up by 2.4%. Of course, it was lifted in part thanks to a nearly 14% gain for Meta platforms in yesterday's session after that company came out with very strong earnings. This morning, a little bit of weakness. Amazon sounded great, but then when the conference call started, they had uh, some concerns about what's happening with Cloud. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. Joining us today to answer your questions is Andy Jassy, our CEO. I think it's important to remember that there's still so much growth ahead of the cloud. 90 plus percent of the global IT spend is on premises. And so if you believe that equation is going to flip, you know, it's mostly moving to the cloud. And I also think that there are, there are a lot of folks that don't realize the amount of non-consumption right now that's going to happen and be spent in the cloud with the advent of large language models and generative AI. I think so many customer experiences are going to be reinvented and invented that haven't existed before. And that's all going to be spent, in my opinion, on the cloud. Did we do oil? Oil 74 again, remember? Yeah, it's down from where it had been. Big gains they you cut, saw last year. And we wondered why they cut. They were well, having the Saudis, trouble hold, holding 80. That cut is actually due to kick in on May 1st next yeah, week. We wonder about, you know, can't hold 80. Yeah. But, but GDP, those are concerns about the economy. Why did the market go up yesterday? It went up because of meta and tech. but. It didn't go down when you had a growth cut in half in terms of expectations. Although, if you it didn't if go down, did it go up GDP, because of that? No, but if you talk, looked at the GDP numbers, they were actually better right. than anticipated because inventories were were really drawn down. And the way GDP they thought that works might happen is, in the yeah, second quarter. When yeah. you build your inventories, that's when everything comes in. It tells you that you could be looking at stronger second and or third quarters. High inflation so would, and lower yeah, growth. Yeah, but if energy is coming down, you'd be happy about that. 
You would be happy yeah. about it, except it indicates it, things. Yes, I appreciate but, that. But then but everything that indicates weaker means the Fed doesn't need right. to do as much, which is also good, theoretically. Uh, good is bad, and what's bad is good. Uh, this is best. just bad, though. Uh, a rough quarter for Intel, an adjusted uh, loss of four cents per share. Better than estimates of 15 cents a loss, but it is the worst quarterly loss the company's ever had in its history. Revenue came in above estimates, but was down 36% year-over-year. Current quarter guidance coming in below expectations. On the call, CEO Pat Gelsinger telling analysts that the company's data center business was improving. We still have more work to do as we reestablish process, product, and cost leadership. But we continue to provide proof points each quarter, and we remain committed to delivering long-term value for all our shareholders. More than anything, I think it was it was the expectations issue that has that stock up this morning, yeah. uh, about 4%. Very low bar. Low bar. Shares of Snap, they are plunging. Earnings of a penny per share, beating estimates of one cent loss. Revenue missed estimates and two key user metrics also missed estimates. Those are daily active users of 383 million, came in short of estimates by 1 million users. And average revenue per user of $2.58 was light by a nickel. Meantime, also in the advertising front, shares of Pinterest, they're lower this morning. Take a look at this stock right now because that stock's off about 13, almost 14%. Quarterly results beating estimates on the top and bottom lines. The company announcing an advertising partnership with Amazon. That's the good news. But the current quarter revenue guidance missed expectations. And on that call, Pinterest CFO said the company has no visibility into an acceleration in demand and noted that the advertising market continues to be uncertain. And that seems to have spooked folks uh, quite a lot. It's actually, you know, it's interesting to see how Meta is winning, Amazon is winning. But then the smaller you are, I mean, this is a size and scale story, I think. Although it's interesting, too, just to think about how the advertising has been much less profitable even for those big companies. Right. They sold a lot more, yep. but at lower margin, prices. Margin compression. Yeah, lower prices on all of those things. And, and somebody we were talking to yesterday, one of the analysts was just pointing out, or maybe it was one of the investors, was pointing out that these businesses have matured. They're no longer going to keep growing at all costs, yep. even during, they've become cyclical right. just because they're yep. so big at this point. That's what happens. They are the economy. Yeah. Crypto exchange Coinbase sending a fiery response yesterday last month's Wells notice from the SEC, the statement saying Coinbase does not list clear or affect trading in securities and says that the analysis that the SEC staffers did to try to justify the enforcement action, they say, quote, appears to rest on superficial and incorrect analogies to products and services offered by others, unquote. Separately, the company's chief legal officer telling CNBC, quote, at the time that we went public, we had detailed discussions with the SEC about the very aspects of our business that are now, two years later, the subject of the Wells Notice. Nothing has changed, unquote. We asked uh, for a comment. A spokesperson from the SEC said the agency does not acknowledge the existence or non-existence of any investigation unless or until charges are filed. I mean, this is, uh, this is such an interesting story. Just, it's been two years. There have been people who have been locked up in that over that period of time, right. and that's one thing. But you, to continue to take fees for it is another. And the company has come in and said they do that because their legal fees are so high. If you're an investor that's been caught in the middle of it, you're probably pretty frustrated. But I also do think that the SEC, I, I, unless I don't think anything changed in the last two years. It might be the case. And so it the idea the that this was sort of... Uh, approved or tacitly approved. Well, it wasn't approved. Or, you could say it was tacitly approved, perhaps, or that they suspected they were tacitly approved. Yeah, but I think it it's very approved. difficult to take a company public 
to go through that whole process. If the SEC actually had a problem with the fundamental business model and practices of the company, didn't say anything after going through the whole thing, and then decides that the whole business doesn't work legally under their regulatory framework and that the framework hasn't changed. But it was a risk that you were taking as an investor and as the company because you were doing this before the that's rules a, had that's been That's a goalpost move, I think. It, 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 I don't think it's a goalpost move. It's just the rules no, weren't there and you were trying to no, move fast. If they saw things. it then and then they have a problem with it later, it seems. They, yes. Then they should have done a SPAC and they could be at 44 cents. True. No, but right, if you're going to get approved, first of all, the other piece of it is that the and this goes to the credibility of the markets and the credibility of the SEC. If you're I, an look, I'm not defending the SEC in this but if you're an, because this has taken a very long right, time. But if you're an investor the in the company and the company comes public, the one thing you should have some semblance right. of uh, confidence in of. is that the business unto itself is like what they do for a living, especially because they're an exchange, right. is okay. If it's, if it's that this is all not okay, then it's unclear why this company is public at all, and you would think the SEC should have blocked it. I mean, that's a one man's criticism. view. That, one that's man's view. That's a valid criticism. I'm not trying to say right. that the SEC has done a good job of signaling what's going on. It's, there's a ton of confusion that's come out there from right. it, but I think you can point the finger a lot of different places. Congress still hasn't ruled on any of this stuff to decide who actually regulates so much of these things, too. All true. Wholesale egg prices are poised to fall to a dollar a dozen in coming weeks, according to market research firm Erner Berry. In case you were wondering who followed the egg market, it's called Erner Berry. You can Google it. Uh, that would be the lowest level in almost two years in a dramatic retreat uh, from record highs, well above $5 a dozen over the winter, <laughs> when the egg supply was crimped by an outbreak of bird flu <laughs> in the U.S. Uh, but it has rebounded since December. Uh, when the last new cases at commercial farms were detected. Eggs, it, it, kind of interesting over the years, because remember, the was it the Atkins diet? I think well, it was egg, the Atkins. Eggs were out, then they were in for with protein. The and with the anti-carb diet. Then there was the anti-cholesterol Then there was huge. a whole cholesterol thing. You, everyone was with, the yellow, no with the yellow. With well, the yellow. Or egg whites. Egg, then it was egg yeah. whites. Yeah. Now yeah. I think we're just yeah. back to eggs. Eggs are great overall. I mean, we have to say that. I think we have to say that. And then I was thinking, you know, there is a chicken-egg thing. Yeah. If you could have chickens and eggs, like if you had enough chickens yeah, with a couple of roosters, chickens and eggs, chickens and chickens, and then you'll get the eggs. You get the eggs, right? As long as you don't and kill the chickens. It's an arbitrage play. Yes, it's an arbitrage. But uh, uh, can you can you get the chickens for cheap enough price so that then you get enough eggs or enough of them? The scariest thing is, I mean, when you. Just one more thing. When, when you do have chicken, you know how you just think it's. You go, oh, let's yeah. go get a couple of breasts. In the old days, you had to go out and catch one of those. Bring it in and do that's just... What, that's what we used to do in our family. Do horrific things. <laughs> Think what you had to do to eat a chicken in the old days. We should be thankful. You know? Makes me want to be Thank God there's Christine. Can I tell you one of my, my, my first job when I was 16 in Belgrade, Where's this going to go? Where's this no, going? <laughs> part of what I had to do was Tuesday was chicken cleaning day, and I had to pluck the rest of the feathers off and then fry the chickens, which is why I Ernie stayed in school, us. man. You had to just keep plucking. <laughs> Cheese will be next. 
Coming up on Squawk Pod, Big Oil's profits in the last year hit record highs and put them squarely in the middle of a Washington debate. ExxonMobil CEO Darren Woods joins us next on his company's delicate dance with the White House. There's mixed messages coming out. We, on the one hand, uh, they don't like the fact that we're making money. On the other hand, they keep asking us to uh, increase production. And frankly, when you increase production in a tight market, you make more money. And so, you know, you can't make do one without the other. Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of brighter futures for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. You're listening to Squawk Pod from CNBC. Stand by, Joe, in three, two, one. Here's Mike Q. Good morning and welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Joe Kernan, along with Becky Quick and Andrew Ross Sorkin. ExxonMobil out with earnings earlier this morning. The oil giant reporting an adjusted $2.83 a share. That was much better than the $2.59 that the street was looking for. That stock, after trading lower ahead of the release, has now turned up. It's up by about 42 cents. Joining us right now is Darren Woods. He's ExxonMobil's chairman and CEO. And Darren, thank you for being with us this morning. Thank you, Becky. It's good to see you again. Good to see you, too. Um, We saw very strong numbers coming in with this, Um, even though oil and gas prices have come down from the record levels we were looking at last year. And and that's in large part because of higher margins. You want to talk a little bit about what was driving things? Sure. Yeah, we're real real proud of the results this quarter. I think it reflects the hard work of all the men and women at ExxonMobil and Frankly, all the changes that we've made over the years, a record first quarter for us off of a a record 2022 and reflects, I think, the changes that we've made in the organization, the streamlining we've been doing, uh, the focus on generating value all along our our value chains. We've cut out uh, over $7 billion of structural cost. We've got an investment portfolio that I think uh, leads the industry. We're continuing to grow production. If you look at the first quarter of last year to the first quarter of this year, we've added on 300,000 barrels a day of production in total. We brought on in the first quarter uh, the largest refinery expansion in the last decade in the U.S., uh, and we are bringing on chemical facility plants, chemical plants in the U.S. So I think uh, as you look across the portfolio, a really good mix of advantaged investments and really strong performance by the organization. In terms of what you've seen in Europe, both you and Chevron uh, go out of your way to kind of point out the higher taxes coming from Europe on the energy sector that they've been putting in. These are the windfall profit taxes that these uh, that the U.K. and other places kind of put in last year. It cost you about $200 million dollars an additional cost. Is that something that means that you will be less interested in 
working in those markets or is this just a cost of doing business? No, I think you touch on a really important point. You know, Europe in the base case is a challenging market for our industry and has been for a long time. We've been one of the few international oil companies have actually uh, invested in improving our production facilities there and to have that hard work and the benefits resulting from that work be uh, taxed and taken away from the company, I think does put a different uh, perspective on the investment opportunities in Europe. Unfortunately, there's a bigger issue here uh, in that, uh, you know, the world balances, world supplies of both uh, oil and gas are fairly constrained today. And, um, We've had some fortunate, Europe's been fortunate with respect to some of the weather and what China demand was doing last year. Uh, if demand turns around, things pick up. I think we're going to see some very tight markets. We're going to see, um, I think, uh, higher prices. And unfortunately, I think uh, Europeans will pay a price for that by discouraging the investment required to bring long-term production on uh, sustainably. Why do you think we haven't seen higher prices to this point? Because a lot of people have pointed to everything that's happening on the production front, tightness in places. You've got OPEC that's going to be cutting more than a million barrels a day starting on Monday next week. And yet, if you're looking at WTI, the price is still pretty stubbornly below $80. It, it doesn't seem to break out to some of those higher levels that a lot of people had seen. This morning, we're looking at 75. Well, I think, you know, uh, well, generally, if you want to kind of gauge where prices are going, you've got to gauge where inventories are at. Uh, we're coming out of a period of uh, fairly low demand. Supply has been um, uh, consistent. And so you've built inventories and that keeps, I think, stability in the marketplace, which frankly, I think is a good thing. I think the industry could be very successful at the prices that we see today. So we're certainly not in a low period uh, by any stretch of the imagination. But the challenge will be that as demand grows and say going into the summer driving season, as people begin to take vacations and travel and airline uh, passenger miles kick up, I think you're going to see uh, that those inventories begin to draw. And then depending on how robust the economic picture is around the world and how China comes out of its COVID lockdown, uh, that demand and uh, will draw the inventories and then we'll get back into a tight, tight position. There's not, you know, a lot of levers to pull to bring on production in the short term. So even if the United States heads into a recession, your call is that we'll see higher energy prices this year in large part because of China and, and other international growth? I, I would say it just comes back to how the demand plays itself out. I, and I would have I have a very similar view as I've heard many of you guests on your show uh, over the last uh, several weeks and months. You know, it's a fairly mixed picture today. Um, there's a lot of seasonality in our business. We're coming out of, you know, what has been, what is typically a lower demand period where we do a lot of maintenance on our refineries. When those refineries kick back in again, you see a, a kind of a flush of supply. And so you see some margin pressure around this time every year. And the question will be, as you come out of that, do you see um, demand pickup? The gasoline demand looks pretty healthy right now. I think the airlines are predicting a good travel season. So I do think that will have a significant impact given the capacity that we have in the marketplace today. Darren, Exxon, quarterly net income, $11.4 billion. We were looking at the earnings per share number before. That's a huge number. It's down about 40% from the highest levels you were looking at last year, but it's something like over the last 10 years, it's more than double the quarterly average over the last decade. So that's a lot of cash, a lot of money, and you have to figure out what to do with it. There's been uh, speculation out there, some reports, a uh, report in the Wall Street Journal that suggested you all were in early talks to, to pick up Pioneer. Are you interested in making an acquisition like Pioneer? So I'm not going to comment on any uh, specific rumors. Um, I generally discount what I read in the 
press, at least put a very healthy pinch of salt on it. You know, I've said in the past, we are always interested in a value acquisition. I think a lot of the speculation has been based on the fact that we are generating a lot of cash. Frankly, cash generation and cash on the balance sheet doesn't change the strategic fit of an acquisition, doesn't change the synergy, doesn't change the value proposition. So money's not burning the hole in our pocket. This is a, uh, a commodity business with uh, cycles. Uh, we recognize that. We have historically built our balance sheet to make sure that we are prepared for the cycles to come. We're going to continue to stay focused on that. Uh, we're going to look, continue to look for uh, opportunities to find a uh, an opportunity where we could acquire somebody that uh, where what we bring to the equation, what they bring together to get together is more than what either one of us has apart. So one plus one has to equal three here. If we don't find those opportunities, we don't transact. Uh, we don't buy volume. I'm not. We're, this is a value play. This is not a volume play. So uh, you know, a lot of speculation out there about growing the size of our our portfolio. That is not a focus for us. It's really around finding the value. And the final point I'd make is maybe a little old school, but I still believe in the buy low, sell high philosophy. If you look at what we've been doing, we've been uh, aggressively executing our divestment portfolio. Feel pretty good about that, and then keeping our eyes open for what could be an acquisition. But we're certainly not in any hurry there. And we're going to find that when we find something, it'll be something that makes a lot of sense and brings a lot of value to our shareholders. Okay. Well, let me ask you two questions on that point. Would a company uh, that is heavily involved in the Permian Basin, like a Pioneer, make sense from your portfolio perspective? And would a company that's trading maybe at $210 down below its $288 all-time high also make sense? What I would say is uh, what, what makes sense to us is if you look at the capabilities that we have uh, and the technologies that we have, our, our um, ability to execute and uh, develop resources, all the things that, uh, that frankly are delivering to some of the record results you've seen. If we see an opportunity with a company that doesn't have the same skill set, that isn't uh, generating the same amount of, of value uh, with the resources that they have. There's there's deal space that gets created there, and we'd be interested in looking into that. Uh, Darren, it's still early. Um, we got the rest of the day. I, I think about 9.01, we're going to hear something from, from the White House about the, these profits when you and uh, Chevron Maybe you should split the days you do it so they don't add those profits together. But are you inured to that at, at this point? How many, I guess two, three years ago, you, you didn't expect that every quarter, did you? When you were, when times were tough, times were lean, but it's going to happen today, don't you think? What time are you expecting it? Well, uh, good morning, Joe. It's good to see you as well. I, I, I frankly, uh, I think if we ran our business based on the political uh, signals coming out of Washington. I think we'd have a, a real challenge on well, our hands yeah. here. We've, we're very <laughs> focused on the fundamentals. I would right. tell you, there's mixed there's mixed, mixed messages coming out. We, on the one right. hand, uh, they don't like the fact that we're making money. On the other hand, they keep asking us to uh, increase production. And frankly, when you increase production in a tight market, you make more money. And so, you know, you can't make do one without the other. And I think actually the, the profits that you're seeing reflect the fact that if you go back five, six years when there was all this pressure for companies in our industry to back out and to stop investing, uh, we stayed with it and continued to invest. And so when the markets got tight and the need and the demand was there, we were we were there and available to answer that call. And you only do that by staying focused on these fundamentals, which is we're going to continue to do that. We'll continue to try to explain to the White House how the markets work and the importance of actually um, letting companies like ourselves that invest billions of dollars uh, generate a return on those investments. Yeah. Well, when prices go up or there's gas lines, uh, you're going to 
it's going to be your fault when you do that too. But, you know, I understand different administrations, you do different things. But under the same administration, you were supposed to end production and spend every dime on production within like 18 months uh, of each other. Yeah. So probably, probably not a good idea to, uh, to, to go with the political whims. Yeah, I mean, I think for us, this is a long-term business. Investment cycles are long. You've got to stay focused on the fundamentals. We recognize that we uh, play an important role in economic growth and people's prosperity. We recognize the need to reduce emissions. Our people's belief survival. is you can do both. Right. Heating, we talk heat. about, we, it, yeah. we can do it. We, you know, we don't have to choose. That's the good news here. We can do, there's an and equation here. That's our strategy is to do both, to continue to provide products and energy that people need reliably and affordably and reduce emissions and address the concerns of climate change. I think, you know, we are demonstrating the ability to do both those things. We have reduced uh, our emissions coming out of the Permian. We have uh, reduced and eliminated routine flaring, and yet we're growing production in our record levels there. This industry can do both of these things. Can you also do both things as an, as an industry and as a company when it comes to saving money for acquisitions, but also giving more back to shareholders and CapEx? Can, I guess that's three things. Can you do all three of those? That, and you've touched on the, the three fundamental priorities in our capital allocation. First and foremost is uh, finding advantaged investments in developing those. This is a depletion business in the oil and gas side. And you've, you're on basically a treadmill. Every barrel you produce is another barrel you have to replace. And so finding the projects that do that cost effectively, have low cost of supply is our advantage versus the rest of the industry is kind of job number one. That then uh, allows you to generate cash across the cycle build your balance sheet so you can maintain those investments irrespective of where the commodity cycle goes. So as high as the numbers get, we also know they will go low again and making sure that we can maintain a consistency of purpose as we ride through those cycles is absolutely critical. And then obviously as those two uh, foundational elements of our business result in success, uh, we wanna share that, that success with our shareholders through distributions and we've been doing that First quarter was $8.1 billion, $3.7 billion in dividends. Um, we, we expect to have, buy back about $17.5 billion this year uh, and pay um, uh, $15 billion or so in dividends. So it's, a, I think, a fairly um, um, balanced approach. A lot of cash to go around, so it gives you the opportunity to do that. Hey, Darren, let's talk a little bit about some other news you put out last night that you are going to be establishing a new global trading division. That's something that Exxon has kind of tiptoed into in the past, thought about doing some of these things, started up, and at the time it was seen as maybe being a little too risk averse to do some of those things and, and maybe not paying enough, having a compensation structure that wasn't set up the same way that, that maybe a Goldman Sachs compensation structure would be set up. What, what's your plan? What's, what's different now and why now? Yeah, I think you've got to put uh, that announcement in the context of the series of announcements we've been making. I think if you go back in time, we've always traded. Uh, I think to be in this business, you've got to buy and sell barrels and, and trade around the business. We've always done that. We had a very uh, functionally oriented uh, organization in the past, uh, somewhat siloed, different parts of the value chain. And we traded around those uh, silos, those those elements, those functional companies to, to kind of make sure they could they could achieve their objectives. When we reorganized starting in 2018 through 2019 into value chains, there was an opportunity for us to use trading along that value chain, take advantage of the insights and the understanding of the market that we develop along that entire value chain and trade around that as a value lever. And so we started doing that in 2018. So that trading emphasis and development came with the restructuring of the business and our ability to see better along the value chains and the opportunities to trade 
trade along that value chain. And we've been growing that uh, ever since then. And so uh, this last step, frankly, is consolidating the growth and the different trading organizations that we've had around the company, consolidating it into one single entity, and then continuing to grow on that and expand that business. So um, it's funny to say we're not a risk, we're, we're a risk averse company when we invest billions of dollars in exploration and take long term uh, views on on markets and make uh, significant, significant investments across those commodity cycles. So I think, you know, we're a risk management right. company. What, what was that, that offshore? How much did you, uh, it just happened? That was you, wasn't it, Darren, down off South America? It was what, like four billion dollars. Yeah, how much did you spend down we, there? You had to abandon it, right? Well, we have in Guyana. We actually have a very aggressive program in bringing on uh, what, where production. Where was the one where you abandoned? Where was the one where you just Russia? get? No, it was down <laughs> just down in South America somewhere. I thought thought it was offshore. Where <laughs> I'm not that, sure where you. Yeah, maybe it, was, it yeah. might have been Chevron. I'll, I'll look it up. But yeah, yeah I mean, there's risk. Okay. They're, they're dry holes, right? This is this is there's risk with respect to exploration. There's risk with respect to the timing of the commodity cycle. I mean, we all went through the pandemic. We understand you know, some of the implications there. So and that's obviously was an exaggerated commodity cycle. But we go through those cycles and you got to have a build. You build a business that's robust to those things. And there's uh, a lot of risk associated with doing that. The operations that we run have risk and exposure there. I think, you know, over the years, we put a lot of emphasis on making sure that we've got good processes and systems in place to manage those risks and a, uh, a long-term focus with an eye on the fundamentals to make sure the financial side of the equation, commodity cycles and the demand side of the equation, we understand the risk and exposure there. And I think we've been fairly successful at that over the years. Hey, Darren, want to thank you very much for your time today. Darren Woods, again, is the chairman and CEO of ExxonMobil. We appreciate uh, your generosity with your time. Thank you, Becky. Up next on Squawk Pod, Microsoft and Activision Blizzard planning to appeal Britain's regulatory block to their $69 billion merger. Facebook's first general counsel, Chris Kelly, on the likelihood of these two tech giants winning their case. Going right at a lessening of competition argument is the way to go here. Um, and I think that that if they can uh, aggressively present that and also you know work in the court of public opinion, um, that they'll they'll have a shot. We'll be right back. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until the Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. This is Squawk Pod with Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Here's Becky. Yesterday on Squawk Box, Activision CEO Bobby Kotick criticized the FTC, accusing the regulator of pushing Britain's markets regulator to stop its deal with Microsoft. I was surprised to learn that Lena Khan and the head of the CMA had a meeting a week and a half ago in Washington. You're, you know, legally you're not supposed to be discussing active litigation. I don't know that they did, but, you know, I think that that's what you're seeing now is that uh, the CMA is being used as a tool by the FTC to be able to create these kinds of outcomes. And it, this isn't the way that they're supposed to be uh, operating. The FTC, FTC responding to that interview, a spokesman sending CNBC this statement saying, 
The FTC regularly and lawfully cooperates with international partners and has for decades under both Republican and Democratic chairs a practice long welcomed by the business community. But we never outsource our authority. The FTC absolutely did not collude with the CMA or with any other international regulator on any proposed merger review. When a deal appears blatantly anti-competitive, then independent antitrust regulators can simply make their own judgments. Seems like there's an implication in that quote, by the way, that they may very well think that this is blatantly, blatantly anti-competitive, anti yeah. which suggests, by the way, that even if you get past the CMA, which you may not on yeah. appeal, you may still land in the soup of the FTC. Now for more on what this means for the FTC, deal-making in the U.S., and so much more. Chris Kelly, founder of Kelly Investments. He was Facebook's first general counsel, Facebook's former chief privacy officer, and an antitrust attorney. It's nice to see you this morning. Uh, let's Thanks start for with, having me, Andrew. Let's start directly, though, with the, the Microsoft Activision deal. If you were uh, advising Microsoft and Activision, would you and you were asked, what are our chances on appeal? What would you tell them? I'd say that they're good, but not fantastic. I mean, if you look at Facebook's history in the last, you know, Meta's history in the last couple of years, they've had to deal with the the, the Giphy acquisition um, that was also blocked by CMA and, and that the, they weren't able to get through. Um, you know, obviously CMA wants to be active in this area. Uh, the FTC has been active in this area. They didn't, they had filed with an administrative law judge on this acquisition on Activision Blizzard, Microsoft, um, but they didn't have the possibility of seeking an injunction here in the U.S. This gives the FTC more time to pursue their claims. What do you make of the idea, and there's a, a whole bunch of folks, uh, Jake Clayton wrote an op-ed in the New York Times recently, about just this idea that the, the U.S. regulatory system has either outsourced, happily outsourced, some of the regulatory regime to Europe and other, and other regulators outside of the United States, um, or that they're all in cahoots together in a way that they should not be. There's certainly some signaling going on um, that where, you know, with public statements and with actions um, and historical actions, uh, the U.S. regulators are saying to everybody else, it's fine to, you know, go ahead and block these things, even if we can't. And so I think you're seeing more activity from uh, from European and from um, and from and from the UK regulators. You know, in, in this case, I think that that um, you know Microsoft and Activision Blizzard have both put out statements saying how encouraged they are about their discussions with the EU. But they were saying that about the the CMA, right. um, the you know uh, discussions as as well in the UK. What, what gives you hope, by the way, for that transaction? You said you think they've got a good chance, but you know UBS was looking at transactions since 2019. They looked at the big seven, and all seven. They did not win. Yeah, they did not win. But I, I think that the going right at a lessening of competition argument is the way to go here. Um, and I think that that if they can uh, aggressively present that and and also you know work in the court of public opinion, um, that they'll right. they'll have a shot. Right. Um, obviously, historically, it's it's not a it's right. not a great great proposition. Two quick questions. Do you see a policy shift in the U.S. happening at all where there's going to be a backlash to what's happening here where, where uh, policymakers are going to say, you know what, we got to control this thing. You know, if you look at the U.S., we are such a large and U.S. businesses are such a large part of the market. How is it possible that we're going to let, uh, you know, the Europeans, the U.K., potentially the Chinese decide whether a transaction is allowed or not?
I, I think that there's a a um, there's been an, an, an aggression on the part of uh, of uh, particularly FTC in this case, and in saying we're going to look at a very skeptical eye about just about anything um, in terms of large mergers. And there obviously was some move in the Congress to try to pass a bill that would that would even empower them more, which has failed so far. And and I think that's encouraging on the part of American business that that for the most part you want to allow combinations right. that can increase competition um, and that, that allow right. even large players to compete well against other large players. And that's essentially the essence of what, what Microsoft and Activision Blizzard are going to Chris, offer. Chris, as we're, we're, we're going to have to run in a minute, but the, the other question is, there's a whole group of companies that are, are like on the tarmac thinking, okay, 2024, maybe the administration changes, maybe something happens, that maybe we'll have an opportunity to do a deal that we can't do today. Do you think that 2024 is going to be a shift, either because Biden wins again and somehow shifts his approach. I don't see that. Or, and this is the thing I don't understand, if you get a, a, a President Trump back in there or maybe you get a DeSantis, the sort of populist right is basically in the same place as, as some of the progressives on the left around antitrust. And, and that, that's been one of the most fascinating developments to watch um, over the past few years is that there is this sort of hostility to, to, to big business. And you see it in DeSantis's attacks on Disney. You see it in a whole bunch of different you know, ways. And, and, and it's, it's a, a bit strange to, to traditional business lawyers um, seeing this. I think that there is the possibility of a shift with a Biden reelection um, where a lot of the what, what's been perceived as overreach um, is, has been shut down in the ports um, mm. so far. Right. And if that continues, I, I think that you may see a, a real shift okay. in the FTC and the antitrust uh, adjustment. We very much appreciate getting your perspective on this Friday morning. Thank you. Thanks so much, Andrew. That's Squawk Pod for today and for the week, Friday. And a programming note for you. Next weekend is the Berkshire Hathaway Annual Meeting, and Squawk Box will be there. Shareholders can submit questions for CEO Warren Buffett and Vice Chair Charlie Munger by emailing berkshirequestions at cnbc.com. That email address for shareholders, again, is berkshirequestions at cnbc.com. And on Saturday, May 6th, CNBC and cnbc.com are the only places where you'll be able to watch live coverage of the all-day event known as Woodstock for Capitalists. We'll have a special podcast series as well. Lots of ways for you to connect. That's it. Have a great weekend, and we'll meet you back here on Squawk Pod on Monday. We are clear. Thanks, guys. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are, with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash activecash.